most people don't even know that there is such thing as scientism. Scientism means that you have this blind belief that science can tell you objectively why human beings should do something or not do it. And I saw a lot in the newspapers. I never, I knew that there's some of these, but I never thought there was so much that even scientists would be so blinded to think that science can tell you what to do. This is the podcast to restore your faith in humanity. Once giraffe heroes, we now call our participants guardians of humanity. Courageous, tireless workers for the common good. May each of them inspire you to follow in their tracks and contribute your own part to a just society and a healthy environment. My name is Dimi Dumortier and I welcome you to another episode of the podcast to restore your faith in humanity. Today we welcome Dr. Sergio Santos, who is a, a doctor in nanotechnology. His master thesis bears the title Human Rights Law and COVID-19. And in this uh, thesis, he states that in Spain, for this is where Dr. Santos lives, The rule of proportionality was being exploited during the COVID-19 pandemic and that the balance between harms and benefits was ignored to a great extent. Nevertheless, Dr. Santos is not your typical anti-COVID rebel. He only argues that in a democratic society, the government cannot bend its own legal system to justify quick decisions that are obviously discriminating for some. Especially the so-called scientific approach was meant to overrule certain human rights. And this made Sergio dive deep into the question whether science can guide human decisions. He also wrote papers about challenging topics like the necessity of work, human labor, since it is not impossible that within a very short period, technology will have made it possible for people to do nothing more than relax and sip a mojito while robots are doing all it needs to make economy function. So what are the implications of this evolution? Um, welcome, uh, Sergi, to, to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So may I ask you to give our listeners a bit of background about your life and work? You, you are 43 years old, am I correct? I'm 45. So initially, when I was younger, I was a lot into martial arts, and that led me to read philosophy. And uh, that's when I was maybe 14, 15. But later on in life, I decided to go into science because, well, we live in a scientific world. So I thought, well, I'll take a degree in engineering. So when I was 18, well, actually, I was in the army when I was, well, in the Navy. When I was 18 for one year, it was compulsory here in Spain then. And I did not study straight away. So I ended up in the Navy for, for one year. After that... I decided to do an engineering degree and then I was teaching for a while and and, uh, and I got into nanotechnology because I, I thought uh, researching was a great thing to do and 
and I saw it was developing very well. So I took a master and a PhD in nanotechnology. And then the last things that I've done, as you say, are law. So I've been interested in law lately. Uh, mixing it with, with the knowledge that I gathered in philosophy for, well, since I was very young. Uh, to try to understand um, what uh, society and basically people that try to govern society uh, justify or invoke to justify the decisions. Because one of the, the key things that I've learned, I think, uh, also uh, in terms of artificial intelligence, for example, is that there's a lot of, I don't know if misconceptions, but uh, uh, or ignorance or misunderstandings about how human beings make decisions. I, I think I think we've always been looking for a reference to make decisions before it was God. Now it's science. So you want to have something certain. You don't want to wake up in the morning and say, I don't know what to do. Maybe I'll go out and I'll have a coffee or maybe I'll go out and you want to have certainty. You want to wake up in the morning and say and behave like a robot. Say, now I must because there's a reference book that tells me that I have to have a coffee at nine in the morning. So I, I saw that this is not possible. And then I I went into the the history of AI, how AI developed, and I realized to my surprise that it was very much uh, entangled with the history of philosophy. And there was a very amazing debate about this, and I and I read a lot about that, about this, and then is when I wrote all this book, uh, all these uh, papers on on human decision. But philosophy, well, it doesn't start with Socrates, but he's somewhat the archetype of the philosopher who uh, who questions everything. Everything is to be questioned. Nothing is obvious. No truth is to be accepted as it is. And isn't that what science is all about? as well? Uh, no, I don't think so. That's the big misunderstanding for me. First of all, it's true that Socrates would say that everything is to be questioned, but if you look um, at Aristotle, for example, he already says that that's not the case, that human beings have so many problems in life that the most important thing, actually to, to have an education, I don't remember the Greek word, the Greek word now, but it's um, Greek, in Greek it's called pedia. And uh, Aristotle, that for me got it more correct than, than Socrates in that sense, thought that we have so many things to think about that the most important thing to have an education doesn't mean to know how to solve a problem, to know how to have a skills. He said, and for me that's quite correct, that Perea is to know what we should spend time thinking about in terms of deciding, and what we shouldn't spend too many too many minutes or hours or days about. For example, should I take a coffee now or later? Maybe it's not so important. But should I take a vaccine? Maybe I should think about it. So if you actually know the difference between the things where you should invest time thinking about and the things that are not so important to discuss for so long, if, if you know this difference, then you have Perea, according to Aristotle. So that's a very big difference between what we consider pedia now, education, and the concept of Aristotle. And I like that. I like that. that yes, yes. But on the other hand, I know certain people who uh, who certainly will not agree because they, without coffee, they cannot function. 
and, and, and they don't care whether they get a vaccine. Yeah, but that's down to them. But I never said there's a, there's a, yeah, yeah, you're correct. But actually he said for us, yeah. So every individual being must know what's most important for them. So if yeah. you grow up and you only follow, follow decisions by others, then you haven't thought about yourself. Then you only know that coffee is important for others. Yeah. But maybe it's important for you. So to me, actually, as well, actually, before I, I came here to talk to you, because it's 10 in the morning, I, I had something to drink as well to wake up. So, yeah, I agree. Let me uh, look back on, on your life. What, and you're talking about decisions. What, what made you decide to study nanotechnology? What made me decide to study nanotechnology as a foundation, the very, very end of the foundation, it's an unknown. I would call, uh, uh, I, I also agree with Heidegger and I call it the nothing. So nothing, nothing. So eventually nothing helps you decide. And what is this nothing? Uh, and this sounds very philosophical, but, but it's very important. I think it's uh, because you are asking me about human decision and I'm very interested in that. And as I grow older, I'm learning a bit more about it, but I think that nobody knows how we make decisions, basically. People think there is emotions. So I would be fast and tell you, well, I had this intuition, this emotion that told me to study nanotechnology because, and then I could give you arguments that have to do with money, with job expectations, which is correct to a certain extent. I saw a field that was developing and I thought, that science was something neutral when you can do good to society uh, no matter what, which is wrong because you can also make an atomic bomb and uh, that's also science. But would you say that then almost all our, maybe all our decisions are what the Germans call hinein interpretierung, like what you will do is inscribed in your, in your script so you will do it anyway and you make up a reason to for a kind of an excuse um personally i don't believe in in destiny or something prescribed i don't think that you are meant to do something <laughs> so basically if you can think you're not you you're not you don't follow a, a script but that's what what we were discussing in the beginning that we would like to think that everything that happens happens for a reason so in reality we're not deciding anything that's a very safe way to be because then you're not responsible oh it happened it must it happened because it did happen it had to happen so i'm more into the idea that human beings think and therefore we can think about why we do something about why not and we can be held accountable for our decisions so that's that's the way i see it well i would like to go back to your writings you wrote a book a master paper um about decision making in the COVID 19 crisis and how did that came to be why why did you choose that subject you're asking me about the book so the book which is a dissertation for the thesis i wrote because i wanted to probe the system i wanted to go into a law school and see if they would let me speak. Would they let me speak? As it turns out, to a certain extent, yes. But also no. So they let you speak in their language through the, um, the references that they give you. You might, you might think that you're thinking, but in reality they're telling you, you must provide arguments in favor 
arguments against, then be critical about two th the both. But these things that they tell you in reality are not as critical as they think. Because if you say something that they don't like, well, basically they'll tell you that they won't pass you. So, so you're not allowed to write. So I wasn't that free writing that. So what I did is I wrote a preface about this book, about the dissertation, even though I got very good grades. And I also put it in Amazon. So and that in the preface, I say why I couldn't say what I wanted. So I said what I was allowed. And yeah, also, yeah. So I have two versions of the book. You, you got the, the version that I presented in the dissertation, but I have another version where I have a preface discussing that. And then the article was because the, the reason why I decided to write the article and send it to a legal journal was because I saw a lot of misunderstanding about scientism. Most people don't even know that there is such thing as scientism. Scientism means that you have this blind belief that science can tell you objectively why human beings should do something or not do it. And I saw a lot in the newspapers. I never, I knew that there's some of this, but I never thought there was so much that even scientists would be so blinded to think that science can tell you what to do. So is it almost like a religion? Well, you can Google scientism and you will see in Encyclopedia Britannica, you will also see in um, Wikipedia, scientism is people that treat science as a religion. That's what scientism means. Scientism doesn't mean religion. Scientism means, well, it's people that believe that we can guide decisions scientifically. If they were, it's very so, easy to show that this is not possible. If it was true, they would have already made um, an, an artificial entity that thinks. And one of the first things that I said people, I say to people when they want to make an artificial ent uh, entity, they say, oh, will it walk? And I say, where will it go? And they get shocked. See, whatever it likes. And I say, yes, I call that the like theory. But this theory that you call liking turns out to be extremely difficult. Actually, the most difficult. Nobody knows what liking means. I like this. Why? Why do you like this? There are many ways to try to understand this, but some people say the scientists think that is physiology. He started with Nietzsche this. Well, not with Nietzsche, but at that time, Nietzsche was also in that way uh, a believer of scientism, basically. He thought that everything is chemistry. So we have a chemistry inside, and depending on the chemistry, we do one thing or another. This is more or less what science believes. Mm -hmm. And you say like science is is almost like an entity in itself, and that we uh, we blindly follow it, or I, I wouldn't say so. I would say that science is made by scientists, but the object of science is to explore the physical reality. And, and it turns out that the physical reality, if you study science or, you will, or physics, you will see that there's now four or five laws. I don't see why any of these laws have anything to do with making a decision. Basically, a stone follows the laws of physics. So if you're a scientist, you can study stones scientifically, meaning that a stone will fall because of gravity. But if I ask a scientist, should a human go left or right? The scientist can do nothing about it because it says should. It doesn't say will. 
you will never say uh, to, a, to a scientist, put it this way, because I can make a mistake, it's so subtle, the difference. If you say to a scientist, will a human, will a human go left or right? Now the scientist, if it looked very closely into your brain and had all the signals, the scientist will know if you will go right or left. It will know. Yeah? But the scientist cannot tell you go left or right, and the human being can always change its mind. And this is, what, and this is what you say in, in your paper, that uh, they used science to tell humanity, should we go left or should we go right in the COVID-19 pandemic? Exactly. And that they, since science or a lot of scientists said, let's go right, then government said, okay, there is only one way to go and that is right. And you doubt that. I'll be very extreme. Science will never tell you, science will never be able to tell you if people should wear a mask. It's impossible. Because I've never seen in the laws of physics, you will never read the theory of gravity. Human beings should wear a mask if a pandemic comes. You know, science will never tell you this. If, if I speak like that, a scientist will be very clever and tell me, but that's not how it works. And I say, okay, so how does it work? He says, no, because we studied, we studied science, we study um, the disease, and we see it's dangerous, and we study society. And I say, and who tells you to study society and to study all these things? Science is not telling you nothing. You're not a stone. You study these things because you like this one thing. Plus, you every time that you speak. And this has to do with Gödel's theorem, theory, theorem of uncertainty, which I think is the key. Anaro's theorem of um, of social uh, choice uh, theory as well. That eventually the scientist, when he follows this direction, very it'll, it'll be very subtle, but they will introduce religion into it. And by religion, I mean something that is not scientific. They will say, "But what do you want that people die?" See, so now it's about what I want. Yes. It's not about science, but it's about what I want. Eventually, it'll come a point where they'll say, but of course, it's best that people are protected. And I say, and who tells you that? That it's best that people are protected. Of course, we see it as common sense, but it isn't. Yes, but, but was this the truth that they did not allow you to, to say in your thesis and that you wrote in the preface of your book? Was this the truth that they didn't want you to tell? Uh, basically, when you write something academically, almost everything that you say should not be your opinion because opinions are bad. Only truths and facts are good. Truths and facts, or you need to cite a very important person, like Aristotle, or, or a judge, or a politician that is very clever, or another very... somebody in the elite, basically, that said something very clever that you agree with, then you repeat what they say, and you reference that. And by the way, that's why I quote philosophers as well, because we take philosophers as, as, um, as prophets, and philosophers yeah. are, are human beings. I never met a politician who uh, eagerly quoted Frank Zappa or, uh, or Che Guevara. No, they choose who they quote, definitely. But quoting is a very powerful way of not taking responsibility for your own uh, conversation or decisions. 
it shows also that you thought, because I have a lot of respect for what people say, that's why I read, it's for respect, but I think, and, and also, I always quote philosophers as well, but I don't quote them basically to show that they're right, I quote them because this is the key. If somebody very powerful in the past said something in a book or in newspapers that was very powerful, that thing filtered into society and now it's in your head. You will not believe this, but for example, who said for the first time, time is money and money is time? Who said that? Not you, but you think it. But you think it, it's in your head. Me too, for me it's common sense now. When I'm wasting my time, I get very worried because I'm not making money and time is money and money is time. So it was, I don't remember the name of the US president. It was in the, about 200 years ago. Who was it? I don't want to give the wrong name. But it was a, a United States president that in the Industrial Revolution saw that people were sitting, yeah, just enjoying their lives. And they said, well, this guy could be making money. So this guy was the first to tell people, in every time that you see yourself sitting and you haven't produced anything, you just wasted time. Because it's not only about spending money, it's not only about making money. And this makes, yeah. this makes a lot of people depressive because if they... If they are not coming up to something good uh, one day or two days they they feel bad and, and this is this is because uh, these kind of quotes they tend to become exactly. part of your script yeah. so now you got me now we got into the part of conversation that is really difficult to transmit because it's difficult to understand i think but you got it exactly basically i study philosophers and i study what the news say and i study all that because it all gets into our heads. So when we make decisions, are we thinking or are we letting a sentence that got stuck and hammered into our head make us feel bad, make us have a depression, make us think that we're not worthy of our time, that we should be doing something else, that we're not productive. So we live in the time of production, industrial revolution. Everything is about either making money or spending it. Uh, where is this coming from? So if we look at history in the past and we look at the person that said it for the first time, we have a chance to deconstruct in the way of Derrida, to deconstruct all this process and try to make, a, uh, make decisions for ourselves. So can I, when, when, I'm a, when I am, for example, just enjoying my time with my cat and I, and I read a quote in Instagram, for example, now it's very typical, people do that, that says, when you spend time with your cat, it's always good. That makes me feel good. In the same way, when it's been hammered in the television, newspapers, everything, because in every language that, every time I meet somebody from China, from Japan, wherever, I say, do you have this sentence? Time is money and money is time. Yes, they all have it. And, and it didn't used to be like that. It's been only for since the Industrial Revolution. So that shows that even culture is turning into a global thing. And the problem with that is that eventually, if everybody sees it, we won't have a reference to one say, look, but these guys do different. No, they all do the same. So we won't even be able to do that. Because if before, in, for example, in Japan, they didn't have this sentence, I could go there. And I would see, experience another way of life and say, well, it's possible to live without thinking that money is time and time is money. But now it's not like that. Every way in the world will tell you money is time and time is money. 
science is also guided by economy. Scientists say that science is about knowing something, about helping people, about helping humanity. And I heard you say, no, science is about money-making. Of course. Why, why did we come up with science? Because we came up with science for a reason. And the reason was because we wanted to predict and to have certainty. Why? Because we had a purpose and objective and we said we want it. For example, if I want to go from here to Madrid or to London as fast as possible, and I'm a scientist, I'll say now scientifically, I'll try to come up with the fastest way to get there. Then I use science. But first, before I use science, I make a decision, which is not scientific, about what I want. And this will be the driving motive. And if you ask any scientist in the world, and they write papers, because if you're a scientist, typically you write papers, you ask them, what do you write in the introduction to your papers? They will say, the motivation. And I say, okay, and this motivation, what is it? I said, well, you need to look at humanity, at the, at the world, and see what's needed. And according to what you think is needed, you say that the motivation behind your work was this. But what is needed turns out to be political, Economical, uh, value-based, uh, there's interests of all sorts. For example, we know very well that the COVID-19 vaccine, people could pay for it. Yeah, so they made it. There was a lot of money behind this. So if I'm a scientist, I want, well, I'm, I'm quite happy working with this because there's money. But will I work in something where there's no money? And actually, if you look up People don't like him, but Bill Gates had an idea to make toilets for the poor people in Africa, he said. And it's very funny because if you watch this, his documentary, he says, oh, but I went to Stanford, to Harvard, and I told them to help me. But they said, there's no money in that. Even though it was Bill Gates with a lot of money, but there's no money in that meant that if they invest the degree or the PhD into making a toilet, for example, for, for these places, when they finish, what will they say to the industry? Oh, I can make toilets for Africa. And the industry will say, and who'll pay for these toilets? They don't have money, so I'll have no job. So it turns out Bill Gates found very few people that wanted to help him. But if you say, let's just study graphene, let's just, uh, let's just study mRNA vaccines, you'll say, well, that's very good. Why? There's a lot of money, cancer. And people, say, I'll be able to cure people. Yes, plus you'll make money. So it's not just that you'll cure people, it's true that you'll cure people if you, if, you, if you study cancer, but also there's a lot of money behind it because the rich die of cancer. So it's, so it's also about the moral value of your questions. Uh, for instance, one of the topics that I'm very interested in is the question about immortality. Uh, because if you look at the possibility of science is maybe sooner or later they will be able to make people that are 500 or 1000 years old. And should we let scientists go their way and then just follow? And is there a way to stop that? There is a moral question. The moral question is, is it okay for people to die? Definitely. And I think... 
and is, I think and, 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 and what I mean to say is that often when you just ask this question, you you get a lot of resistance because this is not a question that you ask. Of course, and it's a very funny question, this one about death. It's a funny one because it turns out that because we thought that we die, actually, if you ask, there's even a saying that says, there's only one certainty that we die. So people never thought about that. Historically, human beings have never thought, what if I didn't die? They know they died, that's it. Actually, we say there's only one certainty, death. And taxes, but death first, yeah? So death is definitely, you can avoid taxes, but death, no. So, so we haven't thought too much about it. And because we haven't thought about it, and now science, and that's the funny part, that science comes now with this uh, possibility that maybe we can live not even infinite, but longer. When you say to people, you catch them off guard. They say, what is this? I never thought of this. So should I live longer? Should I not? So exactly, it's a question that now it's possible to ask because of science. But there's a very nice story that I want to tell you when I was in, in the Emirates. It's very in very funny story. So I was discussing this and I said to, to a girl, an Emirati girl, I said, yeah, I think I want to live forever. I want to make science so we can live infinite. And she said, no, Allah doesn't accept that. We must die. And I say, yes, but I see that you put this cream on the face to look younger. And she said, but it doesn't work. <laughs> you see? It was funny. Because provided it doesn't work, so she's putting the cream to make her skin look good. But then she must say, I'm sure it doesn't work because she shouldn't live forever. So it's a funny thing. So we use things, we try, but we don't want to get to the, to the end, which would be to be God, basically. E even though it doesn't follow, I don't think, from living forever, being God. I don't think so because being finite, and that's a very old philosophical debate also. Actually, Casirer and, and Heidegger had this debate at Davos, 1928. Heidegger was claiming that uh, humans are fundamentally finite, so we need to think about the time we spend on Earth. Whereas Casirer was thinking about the infinite. The laws of the universe are infinite. Uh, time is infinite. Infinite concepts, for example, 2 plus 2 equals 4, forever is universal. Uh, a triangle is 180 degrees, so this type of thing. And Heidegger said that's all useless to, to a certain extent, to human beings. So I actually have the two books in front of me. One is called A Parting of the Ways. Already tells you that something is going on, a divide. And the other, the other one says Continental Divide. So there are two famous, well, famous for people that know uh, about the history of philosophy. Basically, is a turning point for, for people that are into this field in philosophy. It's a turning point because two very big people in philosophy having these two very different points of view clash, meet, and they never converge. So they go separate ways. That's why one of the books is called Parting of the Ways, which be, means separate ways. The other one is called Continental Divide. And even now, today, we still have this divide because there is one thing, broadly speaking, called continental philosophy, which comes from the side of Heidegger, and the other side, which is maybe analytic or 
positivistic philosophy or Anglo-Saxon, say, which comes from the side of Casirer, say. And uh, these two sides are completely different because one of them wants to do science, so they focus on logic, on uh, mathematics, science, and the other one is seen by this group, as, as it happened in the Davos meeting, as metaphysicians, respectively, or nonsense speakers. So if you speak, for example, Heidegger spoke of the nothing. He did on purpose. The guy knew a lot about the history of logic because he wanted to speak a language that would sound nonsense to these people. It sounds nonsense. So is it nonsense? And still, it's extremely difficult. And I think it's very important this because in the even in the COVID-19 debate, we still had that. We had the people that said we need to be scientific and the other guys that wanted to speak a language that wasn't so scientific. So these scientists would call it nonsense. So, so you must write a paper basically that speaks of deaths, of the, useful, uh, the usefulness of masks, all these things, and put all the statistics, and then you are scientific. Uh, or you must speak about psychology, sociology, values, power structures, interests, and then you are giving at best opinion, and at worst, you're just a charlatan. That's yeah. what they say. That's what they say. So that's the split. And you claim this is this is falsification of the of the discussion. Of course, because because this problem hasn't been solved. Basically, this philosophical question that somehow exploded in the Cassirer versus Heidegger speech, not a speech debate, hasn't finished. It basically went into two ways. Actually, it's so much so that. Um, some of these continental philosophers are not accepted as philosophers. There was a more recent debate between John Sell, a philosopher more into the analytic school, and, and Derrida. It was impossible. It was impossible. They were speaking of the same thing that you and I speak. The same thing. Actually, people believe that philosophers speak of very complex things. No, they speak the same as you and me. The only thing is that they take it, they try to take it seriously. Whereas you and I, take it seriously. What does this mean? One thing is to try to take it seriously. Another thing is to take it seriously. You and I, for example, you marry. So when we marry, we say, right, because you have your opinion and I have mine. And we take it seriously, this. Yeah. But yeah. if we speak of facts, what is opinion here? But we know that when we married, opinion matters. So we won't say, oh, just tell me facts. If you go, if you married and you tell your wife that all you care about is facts, I think you, she'll divorce you. You'd be divorced in one week. Exactly. Because you know that in life, in real life, a human being has opinions. Your wife, for example, doesn't like watching TV at night. Maybe you do. You won't say science has proven that if you watch TV at night, you don't care what science is proven. She likes it. You don't like it. Okay. So now you must democratically, and that's why I interpret democracy in these terms, you must democratically speak to each other. And democracy here means she's a human being, you're a human being, now you speak. 
You speak to each other, not providing facts, because facts here are basically like truth is the same concept. Fact and truth is the same concept. So means a Bible or, or a religious book. You say this should be. And you tell you why this should be. It's not like that. Okay, but we can we can discuss uh, democratically. I have a voice. She has a voice. But yeah. how, how do we do that then when we try to look at uh, things from a non-human angle? Can we? Uh, logic is, is, is our brain, is our way of looking at things. The only possible way, for instance, is it possible for us to look at things from the angle of planet Earth? Can, can we? Or are we doomed to look at all things, including the whole universe, from the point of what is good for me? For instance, I know that in the long term, for humanity to continue existing, we need to give back a lot of earthly space to the wilderness. Because the ecosystem that provides the conditions for me to live in, like oxygen and vegetables and fruit, they cannot continue to exist without wilderness, without bees, without trees even without parasites like flies and mosquitoes, and even without microbes and bacteria. So can we look at things from that point of view, like giving also the bacteria, the flies, the mosquitoes, the bees, the trees a voice and go in a democratic uh, process with them? So you touched upon two things, according to me. Upon human beings, being a being, the things about being. This is why I read Heidegger. Because human beings are a being that deeply, within their being, are concerned about being. So what are things? What is my being? What will I become? What is me? This produces anxiety. Who am I? What do I do? What should I be? Am I that which I should be? Should I be different? So all this concern about being, that somehow eventually gave rise to existentialism, which I think it's a completely different thing, because for me... Thinking about being is more more fundamental than what they later called existentialism. And the second point you touched, um, democracy, democracy of the ecosystem. Yeah, like like some some uh, native tribes in in the U.S. They they fight for legal personality for a river to exist, and they yes. say when when people try to move that river to to another uh, side, they say no no no, this river has a legal personality. Exactly, no. actually. Actually, from the legal point of view, uh, I studied a point where in the Human Rights Convention, the American, not the European, because they are too traditional, they, they cannot make a decision. The European Convention is scared, the European uh, human courts are scared of making a, a, a radical decision like that. So they will not make it. But the Americans did. Uh, they gave a tribe. They said that the tribe has the right over a field, even though they didn't buy it, because within their culture, buying is not necessary to own. So yeah, it's a very interesting topic legally. But you said two things besides the legal, which we would enter into what I would call scientific metaphysics. And by scientific metaphysics, I would say the modern language, where we speak of subjective things, objective, logic, uh, true, false, all this type of language is modern metaphysical speech, which encloses into a way of speaking. Doesn't mean it's a bad thing, but we should be aware that we're speaking in a certain way. So another thing is that you touched upon, which is related to your question, is human beings. 
So, why am I so interested about being? Actually, your question is being. What is the being of a river? What is the being of me? So, because you're a human being, and you're interested about being, and you're concerned, not interested casually. Oh, now I'm interested in, uh, in the river. No, no, you're concerned about the river. It's not casual. Maybe you would give up your life for the river. Human beings have this type of being that concerns the being to an extent that they are willing to give up their being fully for what they believe being should be. So if the river should be this, I'm willing to give up my life, what I think it's me, for the river. So this is one thing that you, as a human being, can think of all this. So indeed, what is the being of a river? This is an open question, but science wants to close it off. Why? Because if you ask the scientific method, they will look at the particles, they would look at the interactions, but you're thinking in a different way to science. You want to give the river a type of being, you want to think of the river in a way that the being of the river is beyond science. Science will never, it's not that will never, but it doesn't have to. Science can look only at the particles. It would have to accept your claim. Will it? I don't know. But you as a human being can think of this river as, ha as being an entity which has a type of being which is not the same as a stone. And why do I read Heidegger so much? Because Heidegger said that science looks at all entities as having the same being. For example, a, a stone is the same being as a straight line. The sky has the same being as a, as a flower. Heidegger said no. Heidegger said, look, a stone has a mode of being. An infinite straight line has another mode of being. Why? Think about it. It's very simple. You can find a stone on the floor. Yeah? You can find it. So if you ask science, does this stone exist? Yes, it's here. It's on the floor. If you ask science, does a straight line exist? It will say only in your mind, only scientifically, only mathematically. So does it exist really? And then you're puzzled. Why? Because we want to give it the same type of being. Heidegger has a very simple solution to this, that in existence, entities have a different mode of being. A, a straight line has a type of being which is not encounterable. Encounterable means that you can encounter by moving in the forest. But a stone has a type of being that you can encounter by being in the forest. A river has another type of being. A river you can experience, you can encounter by walking and seeing the river. Or you can encounter the river just studying it mathematically. So it's so open this way of thinking about what is the river that I don't have time here to discuss any longer, I think. Yes, yes. And then, uh, let me tell you another point, democracy. Okay, so you say, how can I democratically speak of the river? There's, there's one very important point here that I think it's important that I say. The issue is, when two human beings encounter each other, it's not true that we must be rational or we must think logically. When two human beings encounter each other, they democratically decide to speak to each other using some rules or they might refuse and science and all this modern way of thinking does not want to accept that the human being 
is the type of being that might refuse to be rational. We might refuse. Why? Because we human beings. So the human being can refuse to be rational. So when you have a conversation with somebody, that means that this person accepted to have this conversation with you. The rule is not first. What's first is that the person said, I accept the rule. Because, for example, you and I now are having a conversation. So I said, I will allow you, I will allow Dimitri to have this conversation with me and ask me questions. And you said, okay, I will allow Sergio to, to talk to me and I will give him time to answer. I will regulate somehow and Sergio will regulate as well. But we allow each other to have this conversation. That's why I mean by democratic. Yes, Democrat but, but it, yeah. we, we also, uh, because we, we try to give weak uh, people, people without a voice, we try to give them a voice. That's also what we call our democracy. We try uh, to give a voice to those who are less powerful than we are. And actually, that's very Greek. That's the beginning of democracy. If you read about the ancient Greece in Athens, they wouldn't allow the charlatans to speak. They would throw them out because they would say, look, there are people that don't know how to speak very well, but maybe they make a point and they have a reason to speak. The only problem is that they don't know how. They're not politicians. So if you're a politician and you speak very well and what you're doing is fooling people, what does it mean to fool? You really don't have anything to say. You only, want about, you only care about power and money. But because you speak very well, you're getting all the attention and you don't allow the good, the important problems to come to the light. So the ancient Greeks would say, that's not democratic, you're out. Because you speak too well. So because you speak too well, you speak too much like a politician, you're confusing the whole, the whole process. So we must allow those who cannot speak, tell us about the problem. We need to be very patient to try to see if we can understand what they mean. Let's see if we ask the river. We ask, you see, to ask the river is not scientific. If Heidegger would have speak, uh, spoken like that, and the analytic tradition would have laughed at Heidegger. You cannot speak to a river, it doesn't have ears. Heidegger would have said, listening doesn't have to do with ears alone. Yeah? And they would have okay. laughed at Heidegger again. So now you see a bit this uh, dichotomy, say, in the two ways of speaking, the scientific way and the Heideggerian, Heideggerian way. Heidegger would say, a river has ears. Heidegger would say that. But of course, if you say a river has ears, they laugh at you scientifically and say, where are they? They will look at the ears. But I understand you when you say that a river has ears. I don't say it, had, it has ears, but just, Not just, for, Not for, just for us humans to, co to, to continue existing, we, we need a certain kind of, of coexistence and balance. I mean, you can you can talk about the universe, but when this planet ends, our brain ends, uh, and our world ends. So let's try to keep this planet going. And I know that if I cut all trees, there won't be any oxygen left. I can think of new solutions to uh, to make the oxygen, uh, but are they lasting? And is this what we want? So there are two problems here. One, what you say might be wrong. And that's the scientific question. Maybe if you cut all the trees, there's still oxygen. Yeah. Or you might be right. Maybe science and science can do that, by the way. Science can show whether if you cut all trees, there will still be oxygen. 
and science can show if they will not. So science is good for that. Another issue is whether you want to live in a world where there are no trees. Science cannot answer this. You must say, I want the trees. The trees are important. Why? People will want you to prove. For example, there's this debate in, uh, well, in the world in general. It's not true. There's no climate change. It's true. So they want to show scientifically if there's climate change. And if it's not scientific, it's not valid. There are two things here. Again, at least two things that I can tell. <clears throat> One, science could tell if the climate is changing because of humans. But, but another thing is, do I want what we are doing to happen or not? And then I can give arguments that don't have anything to do with science. For example, I want to say, look, I don't care if, the, if we can still manage to survive with climate change. What I care about is that, for example, I don't see rain and I want rain. I don't see green, I want green. I see people that have no, no water. I want them to have water. And this takes me back to what you said before. Uh, truth, science, facts, all these problems are very related to economy. Because the rich want money, a lot of money, and they want more. And everybody wants money, but the powerful entities just drive with money. And if they have a driving that tells them make concrete cities, they won't care about you. Why? Because there's no profit in what you say. If there's no profit, what's the driving motive? If there's the driving motive nowadays is economic, mostly. Why? Because to do things, we speak always, always in terms of money. How much is it to? How much is it to? So all this money must come from somewhere. Will it give a profit? Yes or no? If it doesn't give a profit, we don't do it. So unfortunately, the weak and the poor have no money. So there's no reason to help them. There's no reason to help the poor because they have no money. Actually, I, I have had this conversation many times, even in Twitter, sometimes I engage with people. I say, look, 30,000 people die of hunger a day. Why should I care about a thousand people that you say are more important because they die in a war? You say, oh, it's not the same. The thousand people that die in a war, it's political. I say, and the 30,000 people that die of hunger, what are they? Say, oh, there's nothing to do. It's more complex than you think. Say, okay, it's more complex because you claim that to make it happen for these 30,000 people to have food, the economic or political economic system is not uh, in line with what would be needed to make it happen. So you would have to need an economic market so there would have to be a market, money, profit. If all that happening, for example, we said, look, if we help these people and they had good water, a market will open up, they will buy this, this, and they will give us money. Then somebody could invest money and say, okay, so I'll, I'll open up this market. I'll help them, I'll open up. But this is not like that. So we didn't depend on charity. And actually, sadly, this current system depends only on charity and profit. There's only two things, either charity or profit. Profit means I do things for profit, and when I have a surplus, if I want to give charity. And, and the amazing thing for me to, for COVID-19, 
because you asked me before about COVID-19, that was happening that people didn't get, is they say, oh, but you need solidarity, for example. And I say, okay, we don't live in this system that you call solidarity. It's not like that. For example, you have a supermarket that's full with food. It's full. It has a lot of food. You have a person dying of hunger just outside the supermarket. The fact that there is food, scientifically proven, because we have proved there's a supermarket is full of food, if you give it to this person, it'll survive. But will you? If you want to do charity, but if this person goes into the supermarket and takes this food to survive, you can call the police and they can tell them to prison. Yeah, are you still... Are you are you hopeful for let's say things like world peace or happiness for all? Are the are these hopes that you cherish? Um, the hope that I have is not an objective one, so I don't believe in group objective that will happen. Even though I can have, I say, oh, let's try to do that as a group. Yes, but I think the the most important thing is democracy individually uh, looked at individually, even though it's a group thing. For example, provided you allow somebody like you and me to speak as a representative of the person in the street that's dying of hunger, or of the river, or of anything, and you allow me to go and speak openly, put information on the internet, debate, and you don't cancel me, for me that's good enough. Because then it's down to every person when they look, if they have ears to listen and they have eyes to see, if they are interested in doing what they think they must do, and other people can believe you or they can ignore you. They can say, oh, I don't care. I'll take my money and I'll go to a restaurant every day. I'll spend a lot of money while people die of hunger because they don't have food. Do that, but at least allow me to speak of this problem. So provided you allow people to speak of this problem and allow people to make a group association to speak of these problems, I think society is quite good. I, I, don't, I don't say ideal, but I think it's quite good. The problem is that we don't have this option because they censor, they cancel in COVID we saw. For example, why can I say that for me it's more important freedom of movement than protecting people from COVID. You would say you don't agree with me. Oh, don't you see that it's more important to not allow people die of COVID? You say that, allow me to speak differently. For me, freedom of movement is more important even if people die. Provided you say, okay, it's your opinion, I don't agree, and blah, 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 you say, you give your arguments, but let me speak. The problem with COVID is that they didn't let you speak. So if you say that freedom of movement is more important than uh, protecting people from dying of COVID, they would tell you, you're a bad person. I don't mind that they call me a bad person. Hey, you're bad. I say, but do you allow me to explain why? Because freedom of movement for me, is like the river, is something without which human beings cannot live. So if you remove that from people, you kill them. Yeah? Now they can go scientific and say, prove me that they die. And then you go into proofs. Yeah, uh, It's not so simple. But well, uh, the quick answer to what you said is that that uh, I don't know if it will happen that we live in an ideal society or not. 
And I don't think it's the most important thing because even if you lived in an ideal society, eventually human beings, if they cannot challenge even the ideal society, you feel, you feel imprisoned. So human beings must speak and always be critical of everything. So that's the main thing for me. For me, democracy should not be about voting. Doesn't matter so much if you vote or not. For me, the democracy should be about allowing people to speak for or against decisions by the government and decisions by other people. This is democracy. Everybody has a voice, equality in terms of speaking. Even though you said you gave a very good point, you said, yeah, but what if you don't, don't know how to speak so well? And that's critical because some people don't know how to speak so well. So what that means is that being democratic implies to allow even the ones that do not have many arguments or facts or scientific knowledge also to speak. So don't tell them just because you're not an expert or just because you don't know how to speak very well. Because you must learn how to speak English, for example, in English, very well to be a politician in English. Why? Because language is very important. Not because you're telling facts or truths, it's because of perception. So we should allow those who do not speak well, those who do not have very good arguments, because they don't know how to make arguments, also have a voice. Provided you do that, I think we're in a good democracy. Well, uh, I thank you very much, uh, Sergio, for this uh, very interesting conversation with many topics. But uh, the main topic here was uh, human rights and uh, decision making, science, all these things. So I thank you very much for this conversation. I thank you as well. It was very one of the best mornings I've had for a while. You have been listening to another episode of the podcast to restore your faith in humanity. With us today was Dr. Sergio Santos. Be on the lookout for our next podcast that should be online within a month or so. Thanks a lot for listening and I hope we find each other again very soon.